Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show and a donate button if you'd like to give something back. If you're interested in becoming an underwriter of The Jazz Session, please contact me. You can do that via the contact page at thejazzsession.com. My guest today is the guitarist Mary Halverson. She has a new record on Firehouse 12 Records called Saturn Sings, and it begins with a tune called Leak Over 6-5. <laughs> My guest is composer and guitarist Mary Halverson. She has a new album on the Firehouse 12 records label called Saturn Sings with her quintet, and it's my pleasure to welcome Mary to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the obvious question first, I guess, which is uh, about expanding to a quintet, and uh, what prompted that move? Um, I guess, you know, I've, I've been listening to a lot of jazz at the time, uh, hence was listening to a lot of horns and you know it kind of got my mind going and I, was, I also was listening to I was really interested in harmony at the time so I was thinking you know it'd be cool to have two horns and to be able to write some harmonies and, and sort of incorporate that into the trio music so I just thought I'd, I'd give it a shot When you're saying at the time do you mean while you were composing the music for this record? Um, yes I guess you know Kind of before I started, I, I got the idea that way, and then and then I started composing music for horns. But that was my first attempt at doing that. And uh, just one more question about kind of that opening statement. Um, mm -hmm. You uh, said you were listening to a lot of jazz. Is that 
did you say it that way because that's different from what you normally would find yourself listening to in the course of having the radio on or whatever? Um, I guess yes and no. I mean, I, I guess I took about an eight-year break from listening to jazz at one point. <laughs> so, you know, I think I needed a break after going through jazz school. It, it sort of killed it for me in a way. And so I needed about eight years off to kind of listen to other stuff and think about other stuff. And then I sort of had this period of rediscovery where I was like, wow, this this stuff is amazing. And I'm talking about, I mean, all sorts of jazz, but you know, a lot of classic stuff, even like John Coltrane and things like that, that I'd listened to, you know, a lot growing up. And then, like I said, had a break and came back to it. And so it was when I came back to it that I decided to start writing this music. And what was it about the kind of the jazz school experience or the, the intensive study that that kind of killed it for you or made you need to get away for a while? Well, it sort of turned everything into an exercise. You know, it was almost like it took the life out of the music for me. And having to learn these songs and, and try to play them, quote-unquote, correctly and, and things like that. Um, I think, you know, it, it was actually great for me to have that experience because it made me figure out what I what I didn't want to do. Um, but it also, unfortunately, <laughs> made me made me need that break from, from listening to a lot of jazz, so... Um, but, you know, fortunately it wasn't permanent and, you know, that is the music I grew up listening to and the music I love. So, yeah, I've talked to, uh, certainly more than one person on this show who has said that either they don't listen to a lot of the kind of music they play for Mm -hmm. not wanting to be influenced reasons or whatever it might be, or, and I've talked to more than one person who's also said they don't listen to a lot of music that they just find Mm -hmm. that kind of the compositional process and being on the road and all that stuff kind of takes them out of listening to music for an enjoyment. So during that time when you were kind of stepping away from listening to jazz intensively, did you turn to other kinds of music or did you take a break from listening to other people's music? Um, No, I I was listening to music. I I think I always have, you know, listened to music fairly regularly. Um, But I was just sort of exploring other things. I mean, I was listening to a lot of rock music and folk music and, you know, different types of classical music and I mean, I'm probably being a little extreme, too, in saying I didn't listen to any jazz, because I, I did, but it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't frequently listened to during that period. Right. After the seven days a week, all day, it probably felt like cold turkey if you <laughs> reduced it at all. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, so coming back to this uh, this record, uh, the, uh, the core uh, trio, the guitar, bass, and drums, um, are the same the trio that you've had for a while now, and then you've added a couple horns. Will you tell folks uh, who's on the on the album? Uh, yeah, so the the core trio is John Bear on bass and Chess Smith on drums, and then I added Jonathan Finlayson on trumpet and John Arabagon on alto saxophone.
And how did you choose Jonathan and John uh, out of all the gazillion horn players you had to pick from? Well, you know, I've been listening to John Aravagon for years in the band. Mostly other people do the killing. And I've always been a huge fan of his playing. Um, so he kind of instantly came to mind. And I also was looking for people that could really get into some uh, complex harmony stuff and play free and freak out and do all sorts of things. And I felt that he was a really diverse musician with a, with a great energy. Um, and similarly, I chose Jonathan Finlayson. I, you know, I've really enjoyed his playing with Steve Lehman's groups and um, Steve Coleman. And then I also played with him in Toma Fujiwara's band, The Hookup. So I met him through that and then also asked him to join. Can you talk about uh, when you were putting your trio together originally, what, what you were looking for in bandmates? What, uh, what did those folks need to, need to have in order to make it a good fit for you? Um, well, Chess, I've worked with Chess a lot. Um, we played together in, in Trevor Dunn's trio uh, years ago. And I chose Chess basically because I feel like I have a really strong communication with him and I know him really well as a player and I really like his energy. Um, but a lot of the stuff for me, it's sort of more intuitive. You know, I didn't really have like a list of, of things that I wanted per se. Um, and actually the bass player choice was hard because I wasn't really sure who I wanted. But then... You know, I went to hear John Bear play a few times. Um, at the time, he was playing with Andrew Hill. I heard him play, I think, with, with Matt Maneri at Barbez and just instantly loved his playing and, and his energy um, and, and just his sound on the bass, actually. Um, so, And I felt like he could be a really good complement to Chess's playing. And I believe that my band was the first time those two actually played together. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think it was. So... Yeah, I kind of, again, it was sort of an intuitive choice. Like, I just instantly knew he was the guy. I could be uh, making this up, uh, and so, you know, feel free to, to not agree, but it seems like the idea of a of a working band, of long-term relationships, is, is kind of making a comeback in uh, the jazz world, where it's kind of taken as for granted in almost every other genre of music. Of course, it's the same members of the band, you know, for 30 years or whatever. Right. But in jazz, um, Theo Blechman recently referred to it as sleeping around has always been very popular. <laughs> and uh, and so it seems to me, just from the folks that I've been talking to over the last uh, year or two, that this idea of I'm going to get these people together and we're going to work on my music for the next however many years seems like mm-hmm. it's making a comeback. Is that? Do you see that? Do you see something totally different than that? No, I, I mean, I definitely see that, and I've been noticing that um, also. But I think for me, I didn't realize what a difference that made, having the same band for a long time until I actually started doing that. And, you know, and again, a long time, I don't know. I think I've been playing with the trio, I don't know, maybe only four years or something. But even over that time, I've really felt like it's it's developed in a way that it. It couldn't have if I hadn't been playing with those guys consistently over those years. I think it makes a really big difference just to to develop a relationship as a band and to really grow as a band. And I think, you know, now that I've started doing that, it is something I definitely want to make a priority. Can you explore that a little more? Talk about some of the things that it allows you to do that you don't think you'd be able to do uh, if you weren't so comfortable with those uh, with those players? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, you kind of, you can trust each other more and lean on each other more. And I, and also just knowing each other's playing. I mean, I feel like now if I bring in a composition to the group, John and Chess kind of instantly know where I'm going with it. And, you know, John can take liberties and sort of kind of play what I wrote, but kind of not, 
you know, and he knows that that's okay. And usually I'll, you know, people can make suggestions and I usually like people's choices. So I feel like, again, it's a sort of comfort of, of being able to explore more and to not be tiptoeing around things, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it gives like an openness to the, to the music, you know, but at the same time, we, we know exactly where each other are at any given time. And so on this record, where you added uh, two other human beings to that mix, mm-hmm. uh, did it did it alter that dynamic? I would imagine it did. And, and what was that like, uh, fitting them into a sound that was fairly established by this point? Definitely. I mean, it, it took a while. You know, the first gig, it, it felt really just wobbly. <laughs> and, you know, the first couple gigs. And I think we played several shows before we recorded that album, and I did feel like by the end of the year, we recorded it in December, and we started playing the previous February. Um, and I definitely felt like by the end of the year, we were starting to develop a, a sound as a band. But, you know, I think it takes a long time, and I think, you know, now, even since recording, it's probably getting tighter, you know, and I, so I definitely want to keep working with these guys. I feel like, you know, the music is, has come a long way, but, it, you know, it always takes time. And I think definitely it was probably intent for them to step into a trio which which had been playing together so much you know one of the things uh, in addition to titling all of your songs you also number them and, and can you explain uh, to listeners why you do that yeah um you know i kind of wanted to have the numbers there just almost just for myself to document my development as a composer and as a challenge to myself to, to keep the pieces changing. So I, want, I don't want them to all sound the same. And I, w- I would like to think that, you know, the more I write, it'll sort of go in a different direction or develop in some way. Um, so it's kind of an internal thing for me that I thought, you know, it might be interesting just to have those there so people could see, oh, she composed this one first, and then, you know, she composed number 10 later, just to see the evolution of the pieces. You know, and it's not like I want them to go in any specific direction, but I, I do hope that they'll be changing and, and developing. So I thought keeping the numbers there would, would be interesting. 
you know, plus in 200 years, we can say, you know, this is the piece Halverson number 37 or whatever, and people will know <laughs> what it is. Right. Um, so uh, delving a little more into the actual music on the record, now that we've talked for a while, um, one of the things I really love about this record is the way that the tunes, even inside themselves, seem to kind of be reconstructed as you listen, and sometimes they seem to to collapse, not in a negative way, but to kind of collapse in on themselves and melodies that, that begin and they sound very, you know, kind of linear and the things you would expect. And then all of a sudden it takes a sharp left turn. And I really enjoy that because it, it kind of keeps me as a listener, uh, keeps my, my interest peaked and keeps me on my toes. I can't just assume what's coming next. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the idea of, of composition. And I know there's a fair amount of uh, free playing in what you do too and kind of how those... Uh, those two concepts uh, mesh together on this record. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, you know, I guess I really like taking, you know, left turns and, and twists in the music, and I like having elements there. At the same time, I, I want it to sound coherent. You know, I don't want everything to be a total wash of, of chaos. So I kind of like having things that are just slightly weird or unusual happen or maybe have have something end in an unexpected place or, or turn in an unexpected place and so I try to have elements of that type of thing in, in my compositional process um, you know some more than others and then I also you know I really want to leave room for all the musicians to to be able to improvise and, and sort of also steer the direction of the song to some degree um, so I try to leave space for all of that, but still, you know, have a general roadmap of events of, of different sections of the songs that are happening. And a lot of times the improvised sections will, will almost be leading from one section to the other. So it's almost like, you know, we're, we're ending this section and then we don't know what's going to happen, but we know we have to wind up at this next spot and we know what that next spot is going to be. Um, so then the musicians will have freedom to kind of get us there you know sometimes with more direction and sometimes with less direction depending on the piece does that uh does the direction kind of get as far as uh you know here are the individual parts for each member of the band including the the rhythm section members or is that stuff left more up to you know this is what i want it to feel like or that kind of thing um well it depends on the instrument like i never write drum parts at all I just, you know, very occasionally, the most instruction chess will ever get will be, you know, hit this hit with the bass or, you know, don't play here or play really quiet here or something like that. But for the drums, it's really, really up to chess. And then the bass parts, I write them, but I also tell John he, he doesn't really have to play them. <laughs> <laughs> or some in some places he has to, you know, if it's a very strict written part or there's a unison melody with a guitar or something. But a lot of times he's really elaborating on what I'm what I'm writing, um, and then you know sometimes for an improvised section there'll be a bass line or something, but we don't really have to stick with that either. It's sort of more a starting point. Um, and there there are a few spots where we're sticking to a form and actually following a form, um, but a lot of this stuff again is negotiable. We might start sticking to it and then decide we don't want to, or vice versa. We might decide we want to stick to something, you know. So, a lot of the stuff I think is really the more we play the song, the more it sort of comes together, and we figure out what works. But, but I do try to leave as much freedom for the musicians to decide things as I can. 
you know, like I very rarely tell them not to do something. Unless I really don't like it, but usually that doesn't happen because I really like the musicians. Yeah, it seems like you've kind of self-selected so that those those situations will be pretty rare because you surround yourself with people that you trust and, and appreciate, right? Right, exactly. So, Mary, when did you? When did the music that you play now, the kind of music that you play now, when did you start realizing that that was the kind of music you wanted to play? That that's not the kind of music most people hear growing up. Kind of more challenging. I, I hate the term avant garde, but more challenging kind of avant garde right. music. Um, when did you start to kind of hear that kind of music and realize, oh, this is something I, I'd like to pursue? Um, well, I guess. I mean. I guess I have to say, I mean, I've been listening to some more experimental jazz before, but when I when I went to Wesleyan and met Anthony Braxton, that was really when I started getting into that type of music. And, and you know, having him as a teacher and, you know, probably my biggest influence has really shaped my music and really made me explore a lot of things I might not have otherwise explored. So I think that's kind of when it started happening, you know, when I was about 18, 19 and, and started really getting into his music and sort of just went off from there. <laughs> huh, so meeting Anthony Braxton pushed you in a more experimental direction? That's odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would have thought the opposite. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I kind of expect you to be playing marches at this point. Um, well, can you talk more about that? Uh, I've, I've never even met or spoken with Anthony Braxton, but I can imagine that um, as a student, just showing up and kind of being confronted, if that's the right word, with with him must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it was, and, and, you know, especially being at, you know, age 18, which is a pretty impressionable age to be, you know, confronted with, with Anthony Braxton and, and, you know, the things that I was being taught, you know, opposite, like I said before, being in jazz school, of like, you must stick to the structure and play this like that, and, you know, this is the scale and chord you're using. With him, it was more like... I devised my this whole system of music myself and, you know, encouraging you to be creative and basically, you know, there's no right or wrong and you can try anything and experiment. And, you know, I, I think it's important actually to have both of those foundations because I'm not saying the, the jazz school thing wasn't valuable, but I think being encouraged to, to experiment and, you know, try new things and try to sound like myself you know those were the kinds of lessons I was getting from him so to me that was that was really really important I probably wouldn't be doing this now if it weren't for for Anthony
you have any trepidation about kind of striking out in this direction? Because, you know, obviously artistically it's one thing, but kind of practically, you know, you have to eat and sleep indoors and those kinds of things. And, you know, this music doesn't really lend itself necessarily to that kind right. of a lifestyle. So were you, did you have any uh, any fears or concerns about that? As you said, this is where I'm, this is the course I'm going to set for myself. Well, you know, when I, when I decided to be a musician, which, you know, happened sometimes during college, which wasn't an easy decision because I was kind of thinking, you know, how am I going to make a living doing this? I kind of just decided, you know, well, I want to do this and I'm not expecting to make any money doing it. So I have to, if I have to work like a crappy office job the rest of my life, then I will. And as long as I'm okay with that, then I'm going to be a musician. So that's what I decided to do. And, you know, but also I wasn't thinking... I'm not really setting out to, to be an experimental musician necessarily. I just want to play the music that I like, and it, it just kind of happens to be experimental. But, you know, I'm really interested in playing all types of music as long as it's something that I find interesting. So I guess for me, I wasn't necessarily thinking about genre, and I'm, I'm still not. You know, I'm still open to, to changing the type of music I'm playing as long as I feel like it's it's relevant and I want to keep things fresh, you know? There is still time for the marches. That's all I'm saying. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I don't usually talk about cover art on a record, but I really love um, the art on this record, and I know it has a, a personal connection to you. Can you just mention, uh, describe for folks what it is and, and talk about how it got there? Yeah, definitely. It's um, Well, the story is I had to have a flight case designed for my guitar uh, about 10 years ago. And the, the company required specifications of all the, the dimensions of the guitar, because it's a pretty unusual guitar. So my father, who's a landscape architect, said that he would, um, you know, make a drawing of the guitar with all the dimensions and stuff. But he got completely carried away with it, you know, being an architect. And basically, I mean, it's the drawing you'll see on the cover, but every little knob and, and curve and inch of the guitar is measured. I mean, the people at the flight company must have received this thing and thought it was completely crazy. I mean, it was almost like detailed to the point of being illegible to a person who wasn't an architect. Right, unless they were making the case out of latex to fit it like a glove or something. <laughs> yeah, which is basically what they did. It actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I just really liked the... I, I really liked the drawing. I thought it was... Um, a cool representation of the music, which all, it also connects with the title, which is which is Saturn Sings. And uh, for me, this album was about being 29 years old and going through my Saturn return when I was writing all this music. And one thing about Saturn is being really disciplined and serious and hardworking, detail-oriented, that sort of thing. So I thought the drawing of the case being as detail-oriented as it is with a nice representation of what was going on in my head at the time. So that's sort of another reason why I use that, that you, drawing. You said your guitar is uh, pretty unusual. What makes it unusual? Um, it's really large. <laughs> it's a it's a Guild Artist Award model from 1970. Um, and, you know, it has a really big headstock, a really big body. So um, that's why it was, you couldn't really find like a stock case that would, that would fit the thing. And why do you prefer playing that guitar? Um, well, it has a really huge sound that I really like, and a really, you know, woody, hollow sound. I mean, it, it's, it's not an acoustic guitar, it's an arch top, but it, it basically, you know, it can be played acoustically, it's really loud. Um, so I just really like the sound I can get out of it, because I, I like having 
a strong acoustic element to an electric sound, which I can really get with this guitar. Was it something that you sought out or, or d- discovered accidentally? How did that happen? Um, well, I was trying to get a new guitar. Um, actually, when I was in college, a, a teacher I had, um, a guitar teacher named Tony Lombardozzi, uh, helped me pick out that guitar. He thought that would be a good a good choice and, and recommended that model, and I actually found one for sale. They're not that common, actually, but I found one for sale at a shop in New Jersey and, uh, and bought it. Are you the kind of guitarist, uh, if we walked into your apartment, we'd see walls lined with guitars, or do you have this one guitar and, and that's it? Uh, yeah, I'm the total opposite. I, I don't know anything about guitars. I have Actually, now I have two. I have that one, and I have a, a smaller guitar that I used to travel. But I, I really I hardly know anything. It's kind of funny. I don't know anything about gear. I finally bought, I bought my first amplifier uh, this year. I'd never bought one in my life. I had one that my uncle had given to me when I was a teenager. Total, you know, piece of crap. Amp, and I finally bought one this year, but I'm definitely not a not a gearhead. <laughs> I kind of, you know, I, I like what I have, and I just stick with it. Yeah, you know, I don't know anything about broadcasting, and look how well this is going. So uh, we're <laughs> we're a perfect fit. Um, you, you mentioned uh, that you like to play more kinds of music than uh, just what's uh, recorded on this record. And anyone who looks at your discography or the bands that you're involved in would see that that's true. Uh, we could take a whole other show just talking about all the projects you're involved in. But can you mention some of the people that you're working with these days? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I've had a, a duo project for a long time with violist Jessica Pavone which we both write music for. Uh, we've been, I guess we've been doing that for about eight years now. So that's another longstanding project that I do. And I have an experimental rock band that I sing in and, uh, and play guitar with, with Kevin Shea on drums and Kyle Forster on bass, and that's called People. Um, and those are sort of the main projects that I write for and, and compose for. And... And then I just do a lot of playing in other people's groups, which I actually really enjoy. I, I really enjoy playing and interpreting other people's music, so I do a lot of that as well. And if folks go to uh, thejazzsession.com and look at the show notes, there are links uh, to Mary's site, and you can uh, see all the things she's involved with, and there's a concert calendar there, too, so you can go see her live. Uh, Mary, I know there's a, a record release show coming up uh, for this album. Can you talk about uh, when and where that is? Yeah, it's on September 30th at Barbez, which is in Park Slope in Brooklyn, and we'll be doing two sets, one at 10 p.m. and one at 11 p.m. And that's the uh, all the same band from the record? 
Uh, except Jonathan Finlayson, who's out of town. It'll be Kirk Kanuski on cornet, and everybody else is, is the same as on the record. Fantastic. My guest is Mary Halverson. She and her quintet have a new record called Saturn Sings on the Firehouse 12 Records label. Uh, Mary, I really enjoy this record, and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. That's guitarist Mary Halverson from her new album Saturn Sings on Firehouse 12 Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, believe it or not, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to help you purchase the music that you hear on the show. And if you do it that way, a little bit of the money comes back to the Jazz Session. And you'll find a donate button, which allows 100% of the money to go straight to the Jazz Session from uh, your secure charitable donation. I shouldn't say charitable. It's not a 501c3 or anything. You don't get anything for it except the satisfaction of supporting this wonderful program. Don't you feel warm inside already? My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet. They've got a great new record called Farcical Built for Six, which has uh, a wonderful cover and also, uh, well, good music, of course, and liner notes written by my friend Jeff Rabel, who you find at jeffrabel.com. If you wanted to buy the Respect Sextet record, which I imagine you do, uh, you'll need to go to respectsextet.com. That's respectsextet.com. Speaking of the Vrabel boys, uh, the other Vrabel boy, Dave Vrabel, designed the logo for this very program. We keep it in the family here at the Jazz Session. Thank you so much for listening. It's a pleasure to have you along. Please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.